production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Robin Sharma is a globally respected humanitarian whose work has been embraced by rock stars, royalty, billionaires and celebrity CEOs. In our second conversation on A Life of Greatness, Robin and I discuss the complexities of the human experience, growth, contentment and love, and the deep personal satisfaction that comes with contributing beyond ourselves. Luck shows up when you treat people with respect and you're generous versus a taker. Luck shows up when you follow the truth of greatness and success. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Robin Sharma has many international bestsellers, such as The 5am Club, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari and his newest book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto. In its essence, this conversation deals with grappling fear, how to manifest the better self within and the focus required to accomplish your dreams. Every time I interview Robin, I'm deeply moved by his wisdom and vulnerability. I hold him and his work in the highest regard. My hope is that his words propel you to keep pushing when it matters most. Robin Sharma, welcome back to A Life of Greatness for the second time. Something you and I have in common is that we both continue to study the greats. Can you tell me why has this been such an important venture for you? Well, Sarah, uh, it's great to be back. It's great to see you. It's just my way of life. I just, I'm, I'm curious. I, I love seeking the truth. Um, I, I believe my life's mission is to write these books uh, that help people navigate adversity and own their bravery and remember and get the sparkle in their eye back. I mean, I wrote the Everyday Hero Manifesto over 16 months during the pandemic. And the uh, often we couldn't go out. So I really went in and I wrote this book as a, as a labor of love. And I think, you know, one of the through lines of, of the book is we're all waiting for these heroes, the Mandelas, the Mother Teresas, the Hedy Lamars, the Shakespeare's, the Einsteins. But the, rea- the reality is we all have this genius and heroism inside of ourselves. But I think there's so many people that are, that are suffering from this word called angst. Mm. You know, it's not just because of the pandemic and the wildfires, the social unrest, but a lot of people are at a point in their lives. It's, I thought life would be greater, you know. Like the name of your podcast, right? I thought my life would be a life of greatness. When we were kids, we had these incredible childhood dreams because we hadn't been taught to fear. We hadn't been taught to be restrictive. We hadn't been taught to beat ourselves up. And so really, I think it's, it's, it's not a venture to me. It's, 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 it's the purpose of my life to help people reclaim their best and live better lives so they make the world a brighter place in the process. You have your wonderful new book, 
the everyday hero manifesto and you open with, I'm just going to read a bit out of it. As a citizen of the earth, you have been called to harness your primal power to do amazing things, to make astonishing progress and to uplift the lives of your brothers and sisters with whom you caretake the planet. I believe all of this to be truth, no matter where the hands of nature have placed you. Your past need not prescribe your future. Tomorrow can always be made into something better than today. You are human and this is what humans are able to do. Why do you believe this to be true? I've been in the field uh, for twenty for a quarter of a century, so I've had hands-on experience, you know, seeing how people can rise. And even from, I mean, I talk a lot in the book about my own difficulties, tragedies, um, horror stories, healing processes, and I've I've learned that in my own life. I've learned, you know. Years ago, I was more of a victim, and I and, and that's just giving away your power. That's what victims do. They're mm. all about can't versus can. They're all about past versus present and future. And I just, I've learned in my own life, the more I worked on myself, the more I meditate and pray, work with healers, read books, venture out into the brave unknown, even if I'm terrified, the more I, I take my power back. I'm not saying I'm, I'm so special. And then if you study the greats, literally, I mean, my life changed a number of years ago when I stood in Nelson Mandela's prison cell and he could have given away his power and say, you know, I've got to spend 27 years in a prison in, in, in jail. And instead he used that time to become Nelson Mandela. And it's not just for Nelson Mandela. And that's why the book is the everyday hero manifesto. Mm. Like I, I see in this time we live in right now, there are all these people, a lot of people are playing victim. Yes. And yet there's some people saying, what's the opportunity? And it could be, okay, you know, look what's going on in the world right now. How can I add more value and be entrepreneurial and serve more people and in the process win? Or it could be the world is a mess right now. What is it bringing up for me? And work with what's coming up so you become become a braver, stronger, wiser, more human person. Because... Adversity is an incredible gift if you use it to your, to your advantage. And if you look at the greats, the, the great heroes of the world, they all suffered more than most people. Yes. But rather than blaming the adversity in the world and the situation they were in, they used it to become stronger and become more intimate with their personal gifts. How have you used adversity to your advantage? Well, there's a chapter in the book, for example, that time, 10 years of my journals, private journals were taken and I could have cried about it. I could have said, Oh, look, you know, my, my most intimate thoughts and ruminations and all of that is that it's, it's gone. But I, I used it as an opportunity to learn one of the greatest of all human lessons, which is detachment. And to let go. And as you know, Sarah, the great spiritual masters were in the world, but not of the world. And so I've used adversity, especially pain. Society, our culture says, if you're in pain, run from pain. Mm. If you're in pain, be grateful. If you're in pain, start positive thinking. Well, that's a great way to repress all the emotions of pain and sorrow and anger and guilt and shame that come up during a difficult time. What I've tried my best to do is stay with the pain, not escape it, 
because that's going to suppress it. It'll create that, what I call in the book, that field of hurt. And that field of hurt that we all pick up as we go through life, that's what blocks our creativity, our energy, our productivity, and our connection with the truth. And so in my difficult times, I've, I've tried to work with the pain and feel the pain and let the pain actually purify me. And I, I've found it reduces the ego and it makes us more in touch with who we truly are. And I think as human beings, we truly are heroic and mm. we truly are loving and we truly are incredibly creative. But we, we, we develop this wall where we forget who we are and then we, yeah. In your book, you say, as you mentioned before, that you're no one special. You grew up as a child of immigrant parents with no silver spoon in your mouth. And you talk about sometimes not even fitting in at school. And the principal once told your mum that you showed no promise and other teachers warned your parents that you had minimal potential. But there was one teacher, Cora Greenway, your grade five teacher, who believed in you. How did that make a difference? Well, I think sometimes all it takes is one person to believe in you mm. to change the course of the way your life unfolds. Sometimes it's even a simple conversation. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a line in a poem. Sometimes it's just something you hear on a street. Mm. And Cora Greenaway, um, you know, there's a picture in the Everyday Hero Manifesto of her in the last year of her life when she was 101 years old. And she saw something in me that not many people saw in me in grade five as my history teacher. And she just championed me. And she said, you know, if you, if you do the right things, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do some interesting things with your, with your life. And I've never forgotten how she made me feel. Wasn't it um, Maya, I think it was Maya Angelou. She said, people may forget what you say. People may forget what you do, but no one will ever forget how you make them feel. Yeah. And she and she made she just made me feel bigger than I was, and I actually looked her up a number of years ago, and um, I found out that when she was uh, a younger woman, she actually was a part of the Dutch resistance, and mm. she would go behind the enemy lines um, and help kids who were going to Nazi being taken to Nazi death camps. She would actually save them, and she would bring them to freedom. And just <clears throat> Cora Greenaway was Cora Greenaway was this amazing human being. And that's why I start off the book. She's a great example of an everyday hero. There are so many people across the planet in this time of great toxicity who are actually not cursing the darkness, but they're being lights to use the words of Christopher Morley. And yeah, she was just an amazing person to me. And how meaningful is it when someone sees that light in you, especially when a lot of people have told you that it's not there? It really changes the way that you value yourself and what you can do in the world. So I think it's, as adults, it's so important to make sure that we're really careful about the language we use with our kids as well. Absolutely. Often it comes down to self-identity. Self-identity is really incredibly important. There's, there's a lot of positive psychology. Uh, some of the research of um, Heidi Grant Halverson or Sonia Lubomirsky, for example, and they will say, we all have a, a personal story. And that personal story is formed from the words that have been 
offered to us, mm-hmm. the experiences we have, the book, we, like everything that happens to us, every event, every book, every conversation, every time we check our phone and look, all of that shapes our self-identity. And so there's a chapter in the book, uh, I, the IPOP principle. If you input positivity, you output positivity. And there's a lot of great science about that. And so I think it's really important to surround ourselves with an ecosystem that supports the self-identity and the people we want to become. And in this world right now, so much social media, for example, and so much multimedia, it's often to for, it's often easy to forget how powerful influences are on us. Yes. And so the words that parents give to us, even the books we read, the people we follow on social media, the TV shows we watch, all of those things are shaping our self-identity. And our income and our impact is a direct function of the way we, of our self-identity. And it's when we start reshaping the way we see ourselves, reshaping our story, that our performance and our behavior starts Mm. to change because our daily behavior always reflects our deepest beliefs. And when we reorder the way we see ourselves, then we start doing the things required of world-class. What I find really interesting is a lot of people who are on their journeys and reshaping themselves and moving forward in their life, they talk to me a lot about how their people in their past, they start sort of seeing this divide and they find it quite challenging because it might be people they grew up with or even family members where they have been friends with them or had them in their life for such a long period of time. And then suddenly they see that they don't have the same things in common. And there's just this, there's this separation. What advice would you give to people who are struggling with that, who do want to move forward, but they're still holding on to those people of the past that may not serve them? Reason, season, lifetime. And what I mean by that, and that's that's not my phrase. Um, you know, a friend of mine once shared it to me with me years ago. People come into our lives for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. You can follow your destiny and honor your gifts and talents, or you can stay stuck with people who no longer fit with the way you want to live. You can't do both. And I talk a lot in the book about energy vampires and dream stealers, right? One of the biggest things I see people across the planet dealing with, it's they want to change the world, but they're stuck with these people who laugh at them, misunderstand them, minimize them. They're toxic people. And so I think we all have choice. I'm not here to tell anyone what to do, but the reality is you can surround yourself with disbelievers, energy vampires, and dream stealers. And that can be someone's choice, but then don't be surprised if you're negative, if you're de-energized, if, I mean, let's go to the science. Um, Nicholas Christakis at Harvard University did a lot of, re- he wrote a great book called Connected. And he, he, he found through his research that we become, in, we are influenced not only by our friends, but the friends of our friends yes. and the friends of our friends' friends. And that is because of the phenomenon known as emotional contagion and mirror neurons. Emotional contagion, we pick up the emotions of the people we spend most of our time with. And mirror neurons, these automatically, we mimic behavior of people we spend our time with. So if we're surrounded by victims and energy vampires and people who are entitled and people who are always complaining and people who are always blaming, we will eventually become like those people. So we have to let them go if, if we want to keep on growing. 
When you started moving along on your path, did you have that? Did you have to let go of people that were in your life before you started evolving? It, it was definitely a process, but absolutely. I, I think the more I've learned to love and respect myself, the more I will not accept certain behavior. Yeah. If, if I mean, generosity is an important value in my life, let's say in friendships. And the more I released scarcity and became generous and loving and giving and trusting the universe, trusting karma, trusting that if you do good things happen to people who do good things, the more I, from an emotional level, honored that truth, the more I, I just found it, you know, if, if there was someone like I was paying for dinner every time, mm. I just said, this is, I have fun with this friend, but I don't really think it's respectful. And then I'd have a conversation, but if it just continued because they were stuck in scarcity, I'm not judging them, but that's not someone that I would choose to continue with in my life. Yes. And right across the board, if there's someone who consistently is a taker versus a giver, someone who's toxic and negative, someone who always sees the worst in the world versus the best, I just, I, a time comes where you see it more clearly and it's just very self-honoring to say, you know, I need to move on. And I think the reality is when you let go of someone who's not right for you, it's remarkable oh. how life replies with someone who's even better for you. And, and I'm sure you'd agree with me. It's yeah. very much the case in, in intimate relationships. Yeah. I think it's that whole thing of moving past the fear of actually letting go. And once you do let go of that, the world just opens up. And I know, yeah, for me with friendships and a lot of people in my life who I didn't feel we were on the same wavelength anymore. And as soon as we went our separate ways, you just see this whole abundance of people start coming into your life, people that then fulfill you in ways that you've never been fulfilled at all, be it a lover or a friend or a work colleague. It's actually such a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Life has an incredibly fair accounting system. <laughs> and when you do, when you do, there's a lot in the everyday here about uh, manifesto about doing master work. Yes. Right? There's that line in one of the chapters. It's, um, I think it's kill your darlings, the kill your darling chapter. And it's, you know, it's better to produce one masterpiece than a thousand mediocrities. And I think that's one thing that happens in business right now. We are hustling, grinding and rushing to put out all this content and all these projects. But I'm, I'm here in Rome. It took Michelangelo four years to do the, the, the ceiling of the mm. Sistine Chapel. And so I, I think it's really important to remember to put out great work, to treat people incredibly well, to be a generous person, to, to work on yourself so we're, we're less in scarcity and we're more loving, uh, and even work with love. And yes. when we do that, life, life really, it re, really does re reply. But I think that's where the power of personal growth really comes in. Mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, one of the early chapters of the book, I talk about the, the golden Buddha and the oh, metaphor. Yeah, yeah. You know, years ago, there was this, right, there was this golden Buddha and the monks in Thailand, they revered the golden Buddha. And then it looked like foreign attackers were going to come. So they put clay and mud over it to hide it. The attackers didn't find it. Years later, a monk walked by, saw a little bit of gold peeking out from this mountain of mud. 
they started moving through layer and layer and layer more and more gold appeared and eventually they realized there was this priceless treasure and i that really is a great metaphor for us as everyday heroes and human beings. The more we move through the layers of our doubt, our fear, our shame, our guilt, our restriction, every little bit of work has a payoff and more and more of our gold, which is our luminosity, our gifts, our talents, our potential, it starts to shine. And it's a process, but as I say in the book, small daily improvements when done consistently over time lead to stunning results. Absolutely. And something you say is success without self-respect is an empty victory. I think, Sarah, at the end of the day, we're the only people that we spend the rest of our lives Mm -hmm. with. And if you, I mean, if you mistreat people or let's say you don't deliver great value to your customers, let's say you're taking from the world, let's say you're mean, let's say you're selfish, the best part of us is watching everything we do. And so we might think that, oh, we scored a victory taking more on that business deal. Oh, we scored a victory throwing some litter in a forest because no one saw it and we didn't have to go to a garbage can. But our best selves watch everything we do. Mm -hmm. And the more we do what we know to be right, the more we begin to honor and trust and reclaim our heroic selves. And so I think, Being successful in the world, but not really liking yourself because you've taken advantage of people and you've hurt people and it's all been all about you. It's a very empty victory because your head hits the pillow every night. You really don't like yourself very much. It's so true. I remember, I think it was Maharaji said to Ramdas, love everything and be truthful, always be truthful. And I've always thought about that because I thought whatever you do, just to know it's serving your soul and what you believe to be true and good in this world. Wasn't it Mahatma Gandhi who said, like they put him in a jail cell and said, well, you can take away my physical freedom, but you can't take away my spirit, Mm. to paraphrase. And I've worked with a lot of billionaires. There's a chapter in the book called 13 Traits, uh, Hidden Traits of the Billionaires I've Mentored. And a lot of them, and I'm saying this with great respect, but a lot of the money is all they have. And money can, money can be a jailer. And yet some of the freest people I've ever met are people who didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. They, you know, the ski instructors that I've skied with at different mountains, you know, the, some of those people are the freest people, I think. Great freedom comes by doing you. Great freedom comes by saying, you know what? The rest of the world thinks I'm weird, but this is right for me. Great freedom comes from saying, here are my values. And even if I'm an army of one, I will be honest. I will give incredible value to my employer, for example. I will give my customers magic and beauty. I will treat my family with great love and respect. I will always take the high road in a world where a lot of people take a lower road. And to me, that, that you're right. I think it gives an incredible amount of freedom. And I think the whole, the whole goal of life is not money and social media likes and nice things, and not that there's anything wrong with nice things. I think the ultimate goal of life, when you strip it all away, it's, it's to find freedom and to remember mm. who we truly are. Freedom is such a huge thing. And especially now, us being in COVID and, and you writing this book, you said during the pandemic, I mean, I think we realised for the first time what it felt like to, what we felt like not to be free. So 
we realise what an important thing that is. You talk about your faith being larger than your fears. How do you define faith? I think there's, there's I, I would define it, and it's a great question. I, I've never been asked it. I, I would say off the top of my head, uh, I, I define faith in different ways. I, I define faith, having faith in your values. I find faith trusting your dreams because instinct is so much more powerful than intellect. That's a faith walk. Mm. I'd say faith, right? I'd say faith, faith that you can get things done and you can have, you have talent, faith in what you believe to be true. Yes. Faith in people, you know, seeing the best in people until it comes to a point. Remember the chapter in the everyday hero manifesto, a red flag is a red flag. Mm. Right. So um, I think faith, faith in a friendly universe to use Albert Einstein's uh, words, right. Faith that faith, faith that adversity will clear and this too shall pass faith that everything that happens to you is for your fortune, not for your failure. That's a big one, Mm. right. Faith, faith that life, like life is leading you along, even if you're kicking and screaming, life is taking you in a place that's best for your growth. And that's not bad. That's great. When you had your first book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, you said that the first publisher was not interested and you had coffee with an author who was really well known and he also didn't think much of it at the time. But you still had faith. You continued and you tell this wonderful story about how you're at the bookshop and I think you're with your son and then you ended up running into one of the big shots at HarperCollins and your life completely changed. Where with those, no, it's not good enough, this is not right for us, where did you find the faith then? I I don't know. There's a lot of times in my life, Sarah, I, I, I haven't had faith. Uh, a lot of times, I think if you're on a path of growth, there's a lot of times where, where you'll be confused. Mm. And I think, you know, confusion is just clarity coming to get you. If you keep on growing, 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 you're going to be confused a lot because you're letting go of your old self. You're letting go of your old life, your old belief system. There's going to be a lot of that. But there have been a few times in my life where I just, it was just an instinct. I just knew. And, and, that's where I think um, I, I do believe in, in, in some destiny. I just felt I've really learned an opinion is just an opinion. So don't make it more than just an opinion. And I think that's a really important point. I think a lot of us, we go, oh, I want to write this book. I want to write a screenplay. I want to launch an app. I want to start a bakery. And then people share their opinions. And we actually, believe, we actually confuse their opinions with truth. But we all are seeing the world through a perceptual filter. And they're just seeing the people who are telling, giving you negative opinions about what you can do and who you can be. They're just seeing through their perceptual filter. And that's where I think we, that's one way to help understand about trusting your instinct over intellect. And so, yeah, I was just, I just felt like I met that big shot author and he, he basically said, oh, yeah, you should, be, you should stay it as a lawyer. Being an author is really mm. uh, a, a very risky thing, and I think it is in some ways. And then I, um, 
in that chapter, I talked about the first editor who read The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, and he basically said it was a piece of garbage. <laughs> and, and, you know, but I just, I just continued. And I, I do want to say, you know, I've been in the field a long time, but even now I, I deal with critics and haters and disbelievers, and it hurts because I'm, a, I think, a sensitive human being as an artist, and I really care. But I just, so I sort of, I feel it and it hurts. And sometimes I say, you know, you don't get it. J.K. Rowling said it really well. She said, for some to love you, some must loathe you. Mm. Bob Dylan said it really well. He said, don't criticize what you don't understand. And so I think we have to have faith in our work and push, push our magic into the world and understand that not everyone's going to get it. Knowing that now, and I, I'm sure, Robin, you have so many people come to you with their first books or ask you for advice or can you read my manuscript and are you careful about the advice that you give to them knowing what you've had given to you absolutely i mean my son my son just launched his first book and you know i I mean my my job is to champion Mm. and he's on his own path and so who am i to tell someone write a book or don't write a book or this is good or whatever. I mean, the, the whole nature of, of progress is people who had an idea that was laughed at until they were revered. Yes. I mean, that's, what is it? Tim Berners-Lee, the internet, uh, Elon Musk, uh, Shakespeare, Jonas Salk. Like, I mean, all of the great inventors were, were ridiculed because their idea was so disruptive until it became ubiquitous. Now the whole world uses electricity and uses the internet and uses you know, a, a phone that has all these apps, et cetera, on it. So who am I to say to someone who has this blinding mission for a better future that the idea is not a good idea? There's a beautiful line that you have in the book. Great fortune truly does shine on those mesmerized by their gorgeous ambitions. I, I think the universe replies to you revealing your magic. Mm. I really, really do believe that. I think if we can step outside of our fears, and and again, this is not just metaphysics or philosophy. And I think philosophy is important. On a lot of podcasts, people are going, give me the tactics, give me the tactics. And (laughs) the Everyday Hero Manifesto is full of hundreds and hundreds hundreds of models and tactics, hundreds. But let us not minimize philosophy. Philosophy tells you where to go. Like philosophy is the Mount Everest. And then the tactics are how do you make the climb? And our world is so scientific and mathematical. It's give me the tactics, give me the tactics. But what's the point of climbing a mountain, finding it's the wrong mountain? Philosophy gives us the truths and the, the ideas and, and the beliefs. And so, yes, um, in that chapter, I think it's really important to remember to, to find that philosophy and to find those beliefs that are true to you. You talk, obviously, a lot about your routine in the 5am club, but you speak about it again in the Everyday Hero Manifesto. And there was a really interesting part where you talk about your diet and fasting. Can you talk a bit about that and what you do from your prayer to journaling to then with your diet as well? So that was the chapter, uh, something like become a a pro athlete. And it was the trinity of radiant vitality. And I talked about exercise. I talked about uh, recovery and I talked about nutrition. Yes. 
So uh, I'm not giving any medical advice. I'm just sharing in, in that chapter, I shared what really works for me. And you, you, you hone in on fasting, Sarah, to me, fasting is an incredible gift and blessing. My mother was the first person I saw fasting. Intermittent fasting is talked about a lot right now, but my mother was the first person I ever saw fasting every Monday. She really? Yes, she would fast all day until 6 p.m. And then she'd have, uh, I think all she'd have would be water and almonds. Wow. Why did she, how did she know to do that? Uh, well, it, it's, 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 it's part of the religious practice. My, my background is from India and fasting is incredibly important mm. to, to Indian culture. Mahatma Gandhi, to strengthen himself, if he made a mistake, if he didn't follow a commitment, he would actually fast to build self-discipline. In that chapter, I believe I talk about one um, holy, holy man. And he said, like, how can you fight evil if you can't even control the, the amount of food that you eat? And then we could go to the science. I, I didn't know this, but I realized when I was researching the book, um, fasting releases brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Mm -hmm. And so isn't it interesting, a lot of the great mystics and saints they would fast and then they would have such mental clarity that they could actually see higher and see the truth. And so when I, when I was writing the Everyday Hero Manifesto, I, I was in fasted state a lot of times. As yeah. you mentioned, it was during the pandemic. It saved on my grocery bill. And think about how much time we spend eating. Think yeah. about we sit down, we have breakfast, then we sit down a few hours later, we have lunch, then we sit down a few hours later, that is taking so much energy, so much time, so much creative cost. And I don't do it every day, but I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. And sometimes I'll go, my last meal would be eight o'clock. Next morning, I'll have two cups of coffee. It's a great antioxidant, great cognitive enhancer. And then I'll fast until four, five, or six. And I just sit there, go into flow state. And I would just, I would just work on the book. Um, so yeah, I talked about it, that in the chapter in terms of nutrition. I mean, we can talk about anything you want to talk about about that trinity of radiant vitality well what are the foods that you lean to when you're not fasting it's a great it's a great question and you know again i'm not giving any any advice but i think it's my life changed when i had my genome mapped yes because i and now you can get it done for you know a, a relatively low cost and my genome has said oh you have this optimal gene, this one is suboptimal. So therefore, and it, it turned out that the best diet for me based on my genome is the Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean keto diet. And so, you know, it's a lot of olive oil and it's um, goat cheese and fish and lamb, et cetera, et cetera. So I personally, if someone came to me and said, well, what should I be eating? I'd say, you know, spend a few hundred dollars mm. and get your genome done. And then you'll find out what the right foods are to suit you. How has your life changed from a vibrancy level since your diet has changed? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, the practice. I would suggest a lot of people want a world-class life, but they're not doing what world-class requires. Yeah. I see a lot of people playing victim. They're saying, oh, you know, this is hard. This is this. I can't do this. Whatever. That person's lucky. This. It's all just plain. If you watch how a lot of good souls are living, they're getting up late. They're eating the wrong foods. They're reading the wrong, like putting the wrong information in their bodies. They're 
taking from from their employer or their customers versus giving you know the what I call the ten x value obsession. They're just they're not greatness is less about our genetics and it's much more about our habits. And when we install the habits of world-class, we get world-class results. World-class people are not these special beings. They're just doing different things each day. And it's the small daily wins that stack into these, these large rewards. And so the more I fasted, the more I meditate, the more I pray, the more this morning I got up, you know, I write in my journal, the more I started doing those things, the more my energy really increased. The more I stop playing with my phone, you know, social media can be such an addiction, for mm. example. The more I like let go of those things, the more I, less I watch the news, the more I populate my life with people whose lives I want to be living. All of those things becomes an upward spiral of success and you just get more and more energy. Even I talk about the two massage protocol. What a way yeah. to get more energy. Just get, get, get massage. It's incredible. One of my favourite lines in the book is one of your quotes, fear always screams loudest when your magic is closest. I mean, who hasn't had that in their life? But to see that you write that made me think that, wow, okay, every time that I feel my most at edge, I know that this is when there's something's going to happen, there's going to be a breakthrough. When did you realise this in your life? Well, I, I'm, I, I realized that, I, I don't know, I think my late teens or early 20s, but the more I, our culture says run away from discomfort, mm. but, but growth shows up disguised in wolf's clothing. And so I talk a lot, you're right, about leaning into your fears because that's where your magic lives. Yeah. If you can just consistently every day, you know, practice micro bravery and you're like scared to ask for a nice table by the window in a, in a restaurant, right? You speak your truth when your voice shakes mm. and the more you, you want to say something loving to your intimate partner, but you think you might be rejected, you do it. And you see someone on the street that has a cool pair of shoes and you, you want to walk up and go, man, where did you get those? But you're, you know, how much of our lives do we miss because we're frightened of rejection? Oh, God, so much. Like rejection. We're yeah. so, if I had to summarize, like so much of fear is the fear of rejection. And again, the three-step success formula I talk about in the book with better awareness, better choices, better choices, better results. So as you develop awareness by practicing, practicing micro bravery, you're going to be so, we're going to be so intimate with our fears. And then we're going to go, I'm not my fear. I'm not my fear. It's an emotion and I can feel it, recognize it and still go ahead and show the bravery. As we do that, we consistently take our power back. People always say, how do we become more powerful? You practice becoming more powerful through the consistent doing of scary things yes. every day. There's a word that you mentioned before, and I know that you don't believe in, and I don't either. So when I read it in your book, I was like, ah, oh, this is very refreshing. It's the word luck, that things just happen by luck. Can you tell us why you don't believe in luck? Well, I think, I think luck is a story. Mm. And I see a lot of people who are behaving as victims 
giving away their power and dishonoring their potential by saying, well, that person had a, has a successful business. That person's healthy. That person has a great love life. That person's always happy. They are just lucky. And luck is, luck, luck shows up when you do the right things on a consistent basis. Luck shows up when you take risks, when you work hard, when you care about your work. Luck shows up when you treat people with respect and you're generous versus a taker. Luck shows up when you follow the truth of greatness and success. I will say, though, I, I, the, more I, the more I live, I do believe there is, we have choice, no mm. question. And our lives change when we exercise absolute personal responsibility. Having said that, I do believe that parts of our lives have been written and scripted. And yes. you know, that's metaphysical. So I believe like show up, do your work, run the habits, do all the things that are important to living a successful, meaningful, soulful, healthy life. That's our responsibility. But I also believe that parts of our lives just, um, there's, there's almost like a magic mm. that also is part of the equation as well. And I think part of that is, you know, yeah. I. When you look back at your life and you spoke a little bit before about when the man from HarperCollins turned up at the bookshop, is there any other parts of your life where you go, I believe that was written, that was there, regardless of what I was going to do? Oh, I, I think it happens all the time. It, it really, I mean, there are times where I'll just go like, how, I mean, here, here's an example that happened yesterday. Um, my, my son has written this book called The Curveball. And he, he's just starting out very much like I was starting out. And when I started out, I was, Sarah, I was completely unknown. I used to be a litigation lawyer. I'd never, you know, not, I didn't come from a writer family. I just, I was just trying to figure it out. And when you just have a self-published book, as I had at the time, you take the book and you go to bookstores and you say, could you please take five copies of my book, please, on, consign on consignment, please. And they, take, they have pity on you and they'll go, give me your little, little self-published book and we'll put it on the shelf and we'll make you happy and please leave the store. So I went to this place um, and there was a certain area in Toronto and this, this bookshop took five copies on consignment which just means if they don't sell it, you, you have to come and pick it up and you don't, you don't get any, <laughs> any money. I mean, there's like no... So Colby took his book and he put it... He said, oh, dad, I just got this book on, on, uh, on consignment in the first bookstore that it's ever been in. And um, it happened to be the same bookstore that my first book, th that the monk who sold his Ferrari yeah. was in. So I, I think... That's so beautiful. The more you... So I think the more you um, honor your truth and you trust yourself and you do all the things that we've been talking about, the pace of synchronicity actually does increase. Mm. And you start seeing these amazing things happening on a, on a much more regular basis. I know it sounds metaphysical, but I'm just reporting on, on my experience. Yes. No, I, I absolutely agree. You mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt and in your chapter about comparison, and she says that comparison is the thief of joy, which is a very well-known quote. 
how have you in your life been able to move through comparison when there is not a person in this world that doesn't live a life where that doesn't creep in? It's a brilliant question. I still struggle with it. I I struggle with it much much less than I did even two or, two or three years ago. And I think you know it's almost like it, it's a neurobiological instinct. We we are tribal. We we are members of of a herd. So if we would stray from the herd thousands of years ago on the savanna, we would die. Mm-hmm. So we compare ourselves to the herd so we fit in. And that's one of the, the hard things about being an artist and about being innovative. And if you're an entrepreneur, disrupting. It's, okay, we want, we want to be disruptive and push magic in the world that no one else is doing. So we bring fresh value to people because the marketplace always re- replies to fresh value. And yet we're afraid to because to be an original because then we look different and we'll be ostracized from the herd. And so it's almost like we're at war with our own natural human instincts. And so I think I've, I've come a long way in not comparing myself. And, um, and how did I do that? Uh, I meditate a lot. Mm. I, I do a lot of guided meditations. I pray a lot. I write in my journal almost every day. So I be, develop more intimacy with the power of not comparing. Um, I read a lot of books that have helped me. I work with healers. I've worked with healers for a quarter of a century, you know, to help me release. And, and so I would recognize it's a, it's a neurobiological instinct. Having said that, it also is a result of micro and macro trauma yes. where we, where we really aren't connected with who we truly are. So we dishonor ourselves. So then we compare. And so the more, the more emotional healing we can do and reconnect with that that suppressed trauma and those old emotions we actually release them and we become less interested in comparing ourselves to other people you mentioned in the book you talk about your divorce and how that was obviously a hard time for you how did you manage to move through that you just you just put one foot one foot after one you know i was listening to a to an interview with chris Chris Bosch, the, the NBA superstar. And he said, you know, there's a lot of teams they're they're ahead and then they just fold, like they just lose their confidence. And he said, the key is, you know, if, even if you're down in a game, you just make the next play and you make the next play. And I think if you're going through, if someone's going through a divorce or they're going through a loss of a business, as a lot of people are right Mm -hmm. now, or they're going through an illness or loss of a loved one, I would say the first thing, the first piece of counsel I would offer humbly and respectfully, and there's a chapter in the book, The Big Lie of Positive Thinking. You know, when I was going through adversity, Sarah, like I'd read these books and it's like, look for the best, be a positive thinker. But that's a great way to repress. It never felt right. Like I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling scared. How can I be, go to rush to positive thinking? And that just leads to repression and the field of hurt I talk about, which it's the missing link to productivity and elite performance because we have all of this emotional baggage and that's why we're not doing great creative work, productive work or whatever. So yes, I've gone through adversity, but um, I've tried to work with, with it and I've just tried to put one foot after the other and keep on going. How did you find, obviously, we were talking before we got on about, I was talking about Melbourne, you were talking a bit about Canada, 
and we were talking about COVID and Canada had a lot of restrictions as well and lockdowns, not dissimilar to Melbourne. How did you find that time and dealing with adversity then? Well, my, my life became very different. I spent a lot of life traveling and on airplanes, and giving presentations and being out in the world. But I, I'm, it was, I think it was a lot easier for me because I'm fundamentally uh, an introvert. Mm. And I spend, I do travel, et cetera, but I'm, I'm very comfortable being at home. And I am. Um, I mean, it was it wasn't the easiest time for any one of us, um, but I used it to to write the Everyday Hero Manifesto. I mean, I wrote it over sixteen months of the pandemic, and there's no way it would be the book that it is if I if I didn't have all that time grounded to basically be like you know like a full time writer. You know, I just get up and you know get my coffee and I'd listen to country music and uh, and then I'd just start writing for four or five hours every day and I was just the world just was so much stiller and so much mm. quieter and so much slower and it allowed me it, it allowed me to really go deep and, and and really write. You say in the book adversity shows up to test how much we desire our dreams. Have you had a lot of adversity in your life? I think people, there's people who have had far more adversity. I, I always, again, I always go, you know, my life did change when I stood in Nelson Mandela's prison cell. I mean, he, he didn't even have a bed. There was a woolen blanket on the floor. The first few years on Robben Island, he wasn't allowed to wear trousers. Mm. He was tortured. He, he said his biggest regret was he wasn't allowed out of Robben Island to attend the funeral of his first of his eldest son when his son was killed in a car accident. Mm. He was humiliated. I, I saw the limestone quarry where he would spend hours breaking limestone with no purpose, only to just break his spirit. He was, he was in, in uh, Robin Island on Robin Island for 18 years. He was incarcerated for 27 years. So how can I talk about adversity when some of the great souls who have graced the planet have faced real adversity? But yes, I've had, I've had some very hard times in my life, and I write I write about a fair them a fair number of them in the book. First, I think it's the most intimate book I've I've ever written. But I really wanted to share what I've gone through to offer the lessons I've learned from it. And I would say one thing: I would not be the artist I am. I would not be the father or partner I am. I would not be the human being I am. But for my adversity, they have served me incredibly well. Like they they there's an old idea like a bad day for the ego is a great day for the soul mm. and the ego hates adversity but the spirit understands that adversity comes to purify us and and, and teach us who we truly are you talk about prayer quite a lot what's your favorite prayer um well one comes from an old an old french mathematician named emile Coué. And it's um, every, every day and in every way I'm getting better and better. And I read that in my 20s. And I sort of, I sort of um, manipulate the prayer. And I, I, you know, to every day and in every way I'm getting better, better, stronger and stronger, wiser and wiser, happier and happier. Or whatever, you know, whatever my 
what I want to work on each day. So that's a big one. Another one that really served me well is, um, you know, spirit, help me move. So let's say I'm struggling with comparison. Spirit, please help me move through this in gentle, joyful ways amidst great beauty at a pace that's right for me and remember the love that I am. Mm. And that was taught to me uh, by a heal, uh, an energy heal, healer I worked with years ago. But prayer is incredibly important. And if you don't believe, I mean, I, I don't come from a religious place with prayer. It's almost like scientific prayer because it's yes. so powerful. Uh, prayer, again, with me is a big thing in my life, not at all from a religious perspective, just something that I've always deeply connected with. And I think it's it's very powerful, very powerful. Robin, what is the most mystical experience you have ever had? Wow. You're, you're, you're pushing me to the <laughs> edges. I like it, Sarah. That's brilliant. Well, I think the, the gentleman you mentioned from HarperCollins, his name is Ed Carson. And, um, you know, long story short, I was the self-published author. My son Colby was about four years old at the time. Uh, he loved hammers and, you know, like he was like carpentry. And so we were at a Home Depot. I don't think you have that where you are. but And then next door, there happened to be this bookstore. It was a rainy night. I showed up in the bookstore. Again, I had the books on consignment. I said, can I take the books to the front and sign them? Because if an author signs the books on consignment, the bookstore cannot return them. I learned that in your book. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, that's good to know. <laughs> It's good to know. And uh, I look over, I perched my son up on the, the counter. I showed the actual counter in the Everyday Hero yeah. Manifesto where the whole thing happened. I look over, this man's watching me. I'm signing the books. He comes over, he says, oh, the monk who sold his Ferrari. What a great title. I said, yes, this is my story. And, you know, two, two or three weeks later, Harper Collins bought the world rights to the monk who sold his Ferrari for $7,500. And I think that was definitely a, myst a, a very mystical experience. I also, again, I'm not giving any medical advice. I'm just being truthful and replying to your question. I did a sweat, sweat lodge a number of years ago. And um, I really worked through a lot of uh, forgiveness. It really, it really was powerful for me. I know people have had not good experiences with sweat lodges, but you know, someone had set it up for me and there were Native American elders and it was just really well done. And it just, um, it didn't get too hot. And I, I just, I found, I felt it really was a big release of um, some of the forgiveness I had to connect with. So I think that was very, very, um, that was mystical. Um, oh, last one I'd share is I was going through a very difficult time a number of years ago. I've never shared this publicly. And um, it was just a time of great heartbreak. And I looked out into my backyard and the backyard was full of like an infinite number of fireflies. It was just never experienced it again, but it was, wow. it was I don't know what it means, but it was giving me some kind of a sign. Yeah. What is the best advice that you've ever been given? Well, I had a mentor in my early 20s who said, run your own race. Mm. Solid advice. You know, I mean, life has different timing for different people. 
I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. Well, that person made a billion, but I don't have a billion. If, if it's meant for you, it'll come at, life has its own timing. And so run your own race, you know, trust your values. You want to be an artist, but your, your family saying be an accountant, not that there's anything wrong with being an accountant, run your own race. Like don't, don't live your parents' li- lives. Don't live your neighborhood's lives. Live your life. So I think that was really, really excellent, excellent advice. What is a life of greatness to you? I'd say, I'd say two things, Sarah. I'd say a life of greatness is spending the rest of your life building intimacy with your heroism and knowing who you are. In other words, spending the rest of your life doing the work required to move through all the layers of doubt, fear, disbelief, restriction, and remembering, you know, the brilliance that lives inside every single person on the planet, the goodness, Mm -hmm. the creativity, productivity, the beauty. And I think the second thing a life of greatness means to me is service. Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, I asked the guide at Robben Island who knew, um, he, he was actually served with Nelson Mandela. I said, what was Nelson Mandela like? And he went, oh, that man was a humble servant. And I think, I think the best among us give our lives to service. And I think that really is true greatness. Robin Sharma, your books have given so much to so many people. The Everyday Hero Manifesto is a brilliant book, another remarkable one to add to your collection. So thank you for making your life one of service to have helped so many people. Always a pleasure, Sarah, and I really appreciate the interview and the great questions. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.